Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky, and Alex's name is Alex. Uh, we are, I guess, starting our year in review stuff with this episode. Uh, it's a little early. I usually don't like to start until the year's actually over, but this is sort of an in-between thing. Like last year, we did the, you know, went over the hit songs. This year, I guess we're talking about the year in animated films. Yes. Um, which is an interesting topic. Uh, I guess you could call it a sneak preview for the uh, animated feature category when we do the movie awards. But I uh, put out a tweet, just just sort of a, a stray thought, as I'm known to do, where I said that 2022 was the best year for animated films in maybe decades. And uh, that, that was sort of uh, compelled you to reach out and uh, suggest doing this episode, which I thought was a great idea. In doing the research for this, I have to sort of backtrack my claim a little bit, but I, I would say a decade. I think that, like, the there, there have been some, some clunkers this year, uh, but I think that the trajectory, like, animated films seem to be moving in a good direction for the first time since, like the early tens. I absolutely agree. Um, I was going to say, I think that the claim of the best in decades, like plural, it's a bit much. Um, But I agree. I think that like the late 2000s, early 2010s was like a really peak time for American animation, at least. And that the mid 2010s saw a major downturn in quality from studios that we had been seeing consistently good output from. Pixar in particular, um, and that uh, we're certainly on the up, like in an upward trajectory. Um, but I think a big part of it is that the studios that were like dominating that um, that earlier part of the of of the two thousands. It's weird to say that we're like. I mean, I guess we're almost a quarter of the way through the like the two thousands. So, but regardless. Um, the studios that were dominating at first, like Disney, Pixar, DreamWorks, um, aren't necessarily the ones that are like leading this upward tick in quality. But I think that, um, you know, for better, for worse, streaming services like Netflix are allowing other studios to get a leg up in, uh, in animated films without there just being the the draw of the Disney or Pixar name that like brings people to theaters and then otherwise they were missing stuff. So uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think you've touched on a lot of great stuff there in like actually, you know, putting together my notes for this. I was, I didn't really put together how many of the things I was thinking of were Netflix. Like Netflix has a reputation for, you know, canceling shit willy nilly and they certainly do, but it's a fact right now that, Netflix is putting out some really interesting, a lot of adult-oriented animation, a lot of, you know, different styles of animation, a lot of letting auteur directors, you know, make the animated projects that they dream of. And um, there are other things that you mentioned there about Disney and about DreamWorks that we definitely need to get into. Um, I'm trying to think what a good place to start would be. I guess uh, to begin with, we can go over... The animated films, uh, like our favorites of this year, and then maybe just you know other ones we've seen. So Definitely. I prepared, I prepared uh, my 
I think my five animated films this year. There are some that I haven't seen yet. Uh, Puss in Boots: The Last Wish just came out, and I heard it's very good. Same. I was um, gonna say it came out just before we were recording this, and one of the one of the cons of us recording this before the calendar year is over is that we can't really talk about it. Yeah, I might maybe see it in the next week or so, and uh, if I happen to see it before this episode goes out, I will drop a little thing in here, but I uh, hear it's good, and I sort of believe it. So, the five that I have that were, like, uh, the standouts for me were Mad God, Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe, Wendell and Wild, Pinocchio, and Turning Red. So, I've seen... Uh, the last three of those, uh, I have not, I, I have a personal aversion to the, the voice stylings of Beavis and Butthead. No sure. comment on the quality because the voices just know me so much. I've never been able to sit through any like Beavis and Butthead content. Sure. <laughs> um, and I've only heard good things about Mad God. I know it's like a, a passion project that was like decades in the making for, uh, by right. one artist. So um definitely looking forward to seeing that i think that um i thought that a lot of a lot of what i saw this year was like consistently good but i don't know how much of it honestly like stood out for me as being like like great so i have a top three uh rather than a top mm. five i say that my top three includes a uh, pinocchio um i'd say uh my father's dragon uh, which mm. was a very recent release from Cartoon Saloon. I will say I finished that movie like an hour ago, so there's definitely some recency bias, but wow. uh, I was a big fan of the movie. Or, or I was a big fan of the book as a kid, and the movie like really captured that same like magical feeling that I had when I read that book as a kid. Um, mm. And the last film that's in my top five is, or top three, is a bit of a cheat because it is technically considered a 2021 release, but only because I had a film festival release in 2021. It didn't have a wide release in Japan or in the U.S. until 2022, and it's up for a, a Golden Globe right now. So I'm going to consider it uh, Inu-O. Uh, I saw it this summer when it had a limited theatrical release. I love it. Uh, I'll get more into it later, but uh, that's my top three. There you go. Yeah, I uh, I, I haven't seen those two, uh, but... Uh... I, I I'm excited to hear about them for sure. Um, the uh, just a, a a smattering of the other animated films that did come out this year, just so we have a full plate that we're working with uh, that we haven't mentioned: Apollo Ten and a Half, The Bad Guys, Bell, The Bob's Burgers Movie, DC League of Super Pets, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Roderick Rules, Dragon Ball Super Superhero, Hotel Transylvania, Transformania, The House. The Ice Age Adventures of Buck Wild, Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, Lightyear, Luck, Marmaduke, Minions the Rise of Gru, Night at the Museum Common Rest Rises Again, One Piece Film Red, Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank, Pinocchio, A True Story, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, which we mentioned, uh, The Rise of the TMNT movie from Nickelodeon, Scrooge A Christmas Carol, The Sea Beast, Strange World, Suzume, uh, Turning Red, Wendell Wild, we talked about, so that is... Uh, Pretty much of uh, 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 the other major ones. One other one that I haven't seen yet, but it's on my watch list. Enter Galactic. Uh, I don't think yes, you mentioned Enter Galactic that is one that I forgot about, and it should be. Maybe it'll be. Maybe it's like number six or seven on my list because I also like yeah. the bad guys a lot. But but you know that that is a good one also. 
the thing is that it's like listed as like a TV special, so I like forgot that. Yeah, yeah, but that's, it is a movie. That's the thing <laughs> to with, be clear, with all these Netflix releases now, it's like what what if it was like a non Netflix, non pandemic affected world? Like, what would be just going on TV and what would be getting released in theaters? Because um, we're getting to the point where um, you know, like twenty twenty one, say Mitchell's versus the Machines came out, and we know for a fact that that mm-hmm. was supposed to be a theatrical release that ended up on Netflix because of the pandemic. But we're getting to the point where movies are they're like bordering like now we don't know if they were ever intended for a theatrical release or if they were going to be something that just went onto a streaming service right away but we're getting theatrical level you know theatrical level movies that are being released only on streaming services or are only in theaters just long enough to qualify for awards but then are taken out of theaters it's true and it's it's a it's a tricky distinction to draw cuz on the one hand you have Netflix where you know the films they put out are films and then there's stuff like intergalactic works like this was supposed to be a show and then we decided to make it one thing so we're not quite calling it a movie but it is a movie and there's you know there's stuff with this other the other streaming services where like we talked about how when when we were doing the they slash them episode we only realized like in the during recording the episode that it was technically a tv movie um the the, and there's stuff on here like um like like these uh Disney Plus movies. There's the the Ice Age movie, but then also the Die of Ruby Kid movie, and then also the Night of the Museum movie. Where it's like, which of these are meant to be movies, and which of them are sort of like backdoor TV things. And there's um the, the uh, you know these South Park events that 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 Paramount Plus is doing, where it's like feature length but split into multiple south park episodes and it's there's a lot of ambiguity there which speaks i think to an interesting like you know playfulness with the animated medium because it you know you can look at the history of animation and see those lines always blurred with like shorts and collections of shorts and tv episodes and movies um and it, it, it's very interesting to to see that sort of brought back accidentally because of streaming and the pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, American animation, as we know it, was saved on the back of shorts put together and released as films. Disney, like as a company, wouldn't have survived World War II if it hadn't just stuck a ton of shorts together with like very loose threads and released them in theaters. So... Uh, it's it's a weird return to that sort of like ambiguous type of of release. Um, I know that we're here to talk about animated film, but I would be uh, I wouldn't be able to to look back at this episode if I did not bring up something that's in 2022 animated news related that isn't directly film, which is the uh, the torching of the animation uh, section of HBO Max uh, under Mm -hmm. new administration. Um, Starting back in August with many uh, Cartoon Network shows or even shows that were like HBO Max originals that were mostly hosted on... Uh, HBO Max, and then were suddenly removed without uh, telling creators, without um, without making it clear if or where uh, the shows were available. Um, otherwise, I know personally, Infinity Train is is uh, is a is an anthology series that was partially on Cartoon Network, partially on HBO Max that I'm a big fan of, and 
when they started doing this purge, they were they removed the YouTube videos, any YouTube video from Cartoon Network, like the official page that was a clip from Infinity Train was removed as though they wanted to forget that the series existed. Um, and I think that for for television animation, it's a bit of a scary time and that you don't know if your art will be preserved, no matter how much, you know, blood, sweat and tears you're putting into it. That's true. And it does tie into, um, obviously it ties into film through through the famous example of, of the Batwoman movie, but also ties into animated films and actually uh, is, is part of the conversation of where things go from here. Because the, the only HBO Max movie that was going to come out this year that got canned was the Scoob sequel, um, which... Yeah, just like was done <laughs> and they threw it away. Um, but there are also the films that were in development where the story was, we're not putting this on HBO, but we're sort of shopping them around if anyone else wants them. And the the principal ones there, I have a I have a list here somewhere. We're talking about uh the Amazing World of Gumball movie and the two Looney Tunes movies, Bye Bye Bunny and The Day the Earth Blew Up. Uh, there is still a third Looney Tunes movie that we do expect to release in theaters next year called Coyote vs. Acme. Uh, that's a live-action animation hybrid where John Cena plays the Coyote's lawyer, and it sounds really excellent. Uh- <laughs> now, now I'm excited for that. Um, yeah, it's... But I have to say, I was really, really hyped for these Looney Tunes movies, and the idea that they are... The idea that Warner Brothers is like, someone else take these Looney Tunes movies. Like, what are we doing? (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, I personally definitely interested in the Looney Tunes movies, but um, The Amazing World of Gumball was like a cartoon that my brother and I like shared a love for when it was on air. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we heard there was going to be a movie, we were both pretty excited about it. So it's one thing with The Amazing World of Gumball. It's like, okay, you know, it's from Cartoon Network. It belongs to Warner Bros. But Owen looks at Gumball and goes, that blue cat belongs to Warner Brothers. But for me, uh, the Looney Tunes films almost seem a lost cause because it's like we're shopping this film around, but are we going to let another studio, you know, take control of Bugs Bunny and, and Daffy Duck? Right. Insane. I, I do want those to come out, obviously. And there's, you know, there there were a lot of, there were some of these films, like what part of the initial announcement was that the House Party reboot got canceled. And in the end, they actually are putting that out in theaters in January. Um, and some of the other HBO Max originals that were kind of in limbo are getting put out in theaters, like the like Magic Mike's Last Dance, which I, I'm very excited for. But I, I guess I'm holding out hope for the idea that like maybe warner brothers puts these out in some capacity eventually or you know i mean if they are willing to shop them around i'm sure that like an apple or a netflix would love to be like here's a here's a looney tunes movie and it says warner brothers at the beginning but it's like an apple thing like like they're they're letting someone else take (laughs) take a slice out of the looney tunes brand like it's a series of really absurd decisions <laughs> um, that uh, that we have to get into. Um, but looking at this year, uh, I'm not sure. I guess we can, you know, go through the films we've already mentioned, and then you know, we, I can just like go down the list to see what else we we have thoughts on. But uh, to start with, uh, the one we shared was Pinocchio, which um, 
I saw that uh, in its limited awards qualifying theatrical run a couple weeks ago, and um, I, at the time, was, you know, I had this thing that I have with every Del Toro movie, where it's like, there's so many things I really like about it, but there's just a few little things (laughs) that irritate me. And uh, in this movie, just to get it out of the way, there's the bit where... Pinocchio dies like half an hour into the movie and it's 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 really well timed it's just this moment where it's like what is happening but um we see him in the underworld and this this character who is the sister of the blue fairy is like you can't really die because you weren't you weren't really supposed to be alive so you're gonna get sent back to earth and each time it'll take longer and there's the hourglass and it's like that's a really interesting thing and then at the end of the movie, you know, he dies and he's like, I want to be sent back immediately. And it's like, oh, well, you can just do that. But like, like you'll be mortal, but you can just make that choice. And it's like, didn't he like want to be mortal at the like, like the the whole <laughs> the, the whole idea of like Pinocchio, they, they establish Pinocchio can't die. And then they're like, actually, yeah, he can. And then in the end, they come back around to like, you know, they make another wish for him to be immortal. Then he just lives on and sort of, you know, fades into the ether. Uh, you know, he might still be around today. Uh, but that really frustrated me. And there were a couple of other small things, like when the circus guy shows up, a, shows up at the fascist like camp, but like he blows it up and then suddenly that guy's there and it's like where did he come from (laughs) but yeah i did like it definitely i think there's um some coincidences in the plot that are kind of there to move things along um i hadn't thought too deeply about the whole hourglass thing but it was something that stuck in my head because it really feels like the information was just given as it was relevant to the plot rather than as it was relevant to say pinocchio as a character um but I I also really enjoyed the film. I thought the music was great. I honestly, I didn't know there was music in it going in. So hearing Pinocchio sing and Pinocchio's voice actor had a, a very nice voice. So that was really nice. Um, I think that the the story it's telling about how, uh, to, to quote Sebastian J. Cricket, uh, a, a story of imperfect fathers and imperfect sons about how sons learn things from their fathers, but fathers learn things from their children as well. Um, I watched it on Netflix with a friend of mine, and something that we were hoping from the film was uh, in the beginning, we spend about 10 minutes with Geppetto and his human son, uh, Bruno, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. And Bruno really comes across as like the perfect kid even when he dies it's not even like he made a dumb mistake and then he died it was truly just like a a bad decision but none of them could have seen it coming um and we were really hoping that as part of Geppetto going ugh Bruno was perfect and Pinocchio is an awful son that we would see some sort of memories to Bruno being imperfect so that it was more of a realization of not just like well Bruno was the perfect son but Pinocchio was also okay to being like kids are imperfect and um my my first son was imperfect and he's not this idealized memory I've built of him and that never really happened uh I think that could have made the story a bit stronger but, uh, you know, the, the pieces that we got, I, I really enjoyed. I, I really like the reimagining of things. It's, it's hard not to compare it to the 1940 Pinocchio just because that's the version of the story that we're all familiar with. Um, 
So I can't say how many things were taken from the original book and how many things were taken from the from the Disney the original Disney movie. I, I haven't seen the the live action animated mix uh, remake from this year. So that's I have. <laughs> I'm excited to hear your thoughts on it. But um, like the nods were nice. I I don't know if it was from the book. But I like that the Carnival Master's last name was Volpe, which means fox, because he kind of took the position of Honest John, who is a fox in the 1940 movie. Um, I liked the the touch on, like, fascist Italy, um, sort of the commentary they were making there. Uh, my friend and I were gearing up for Lampwick to die because, you know, in the, in the 1940 movie... Um, he turns into a donkey and gets carted off and we don't know what happens to him. So I guess this film also gives him an ambiguous ending where we don't know if he survives the bombing of the fascist like training camp or not, but we were gearing up for him to die. So when he didn't explicitly die, we were like kind of surprised by that. Um, Mm -hmm. I think another critique I have is that I wish that Sebastian J. Cricket was a little more relevant to the plot. I do feel like he was just kind of there because sometimes because he was the narration device and therefore had to be present for everything, but he wasn't really doing anything. He was just kind of watching stuff happen. But, uh, you know, I'm saying all these critiques, but in the end, I really did enjoy the movie. Um, The animation was obviously stunning. Uh, Guillermo del Toro is a very, very talented director. That doesn't really need to be said. Uh, I had a really great time watching it. Yeah, yeah. To talk about uh, a few of the other things that I did like about it, just to balance out the critiques, I love how creepy Pinocchio is when he's first like created. I I think the vibe of <laughs> of that first encounter with Geppetto is so great, um, and how he's like you know doesn't really know how to move his body, and he's kind of crawling on all fours and shit. Like it's amazing. Um. The voice cast is really phenomenal. Uh, Kate Blanchett as Spazzatura the monkey is a, is a highlight, I think. Absolutely. Um, I, I read this great anecdote how he was working with her on like his last film and she heard about... Nightmare Alley, yeah. Nightmare Alley and she heard about uh, his Pinocchio project and was like, I want in. And he said, the only part we have left is a monkey. And she was like, I will play like teaspoon to be in a film of yours i will do anything and she does very well making monkey noises spazzatura was my friend and i's favorite character <laughs> spazzatura is really good i also love christoph waltz as as uh count Volpe. um tom kenny as mussolini is very fun uh, <laughs> the, the, the the mussolini stuff i feel like Having known from an early point that this was going to be taking place in fascist Italy, I feel like the first act of this movie is, like, really, really hitting strong on, like, the, you know, Pinocchio's an outsider and how Pinocchio's kind of uh, looked down upon uh, by this fascist society. I feel like there's a point where it just becomes, like, like Mussolini being in the movie almost just feels like a gag. Like, like... It's sort of like the overall message of the film feels like it moves away from having anything to do with that that fascist setting. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, I think I I think you can go beyond saying it's just like a gag. I mean, everything about Mussolini's presence is a gag. His abnormally short height, the fact that he's voiced by by Tom Kenny, um, the fact that his two lines are like, I like puppets and I don't like these puppets shoot him are like it's. (laughs) He's there to 
you know, I think, um, you know, I took a I took a class in college last year on the depiction of Nazis in films. So obviously, we're talking about like Mel Brooks about um, about using comedy to like fight back against fascism and i think that this film for the most part like the parts about it that are fascist or that are talking about fascism are very critical in the serious parts like when um like when lampwick's father tells him to shoot pinocchio like he knows pinocchio will survive but he's telling his son to shoot his friend almost as a way to train his son to obey the state before he you know uh listens to his heart or um relates to anybody else around him and i think a lot of it is a lot more serious and so that one part being comedic does kind of break uh break the tension where the critique of fascism in the film was a very was a big part of the tension of the film it kind of it's a bit tense and then it goes down and then it gets more tense after we see mussolini but his presence kind of uh distorts it i i agree yeah, and I think um I think my favorite p- part of the movie is that first act where we're in the town and we're seeing, you know, how the the sort of social uh that that like panopticon on Geppetto and like how people react to Pinocchio and how he sort of has to bargain with the 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 fascist forces and the way that like the you know the the church and science and they all they they all sort of work together uh my favorite gag in the movie is when pinocchio points at the carving of jesus and says how come they like him and not me (laughs) oh my god i agree that is one of the best parts of the film um i i mean i am all for pointing out absurdity in in like uh mindless religious practice uh so gags like that are definitely definitely to my taste so um i will uh go through the two of mine that you didn't see and then you can go through the two of yours that i didn't see and then we'll continue with the the other stuff um the two that I have on here, Beavis and Butthead do the universe. Uh, Beavis and Butthead as characters, I feel like I've definitely gone back and forth on. And I feel like there hadn't up until now been a moment where I was like fully invested in a Beavis and Butthead story. It was sort of something that like my my parents would reference and like, you know, you know, the great Corn- Cornholio and some of these uh, I- iconic bits from the show. Um, and I watched some of the initial revival on MTV in like 2013, uh, a few of the older episodes, but this film, I think the, the, the vibe just, just really hit for me. A lot of it, 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 it's about Beavis and Butthead sort of being, um, being sort of transported into the present and, um, just the storytelling of it is like they they sort of stumble into all these all these dramatic things they stumble into politics and there are these otherworldly versions of themselves that are like that are like smart but not not really smart and are and are sort of trying to guide them along but they're not getting it at all and i think there are just just such clever ways that like <laughs> they always find the, the the cleverest ways for these two to not get it you know and um yeah just a really a really funny movie really inventive movie uh playing with this this multiverse stuff that that we're seeing a lot of people play with right now but i think doing it in this like uniquely beavis and butthead way 
that I had a lot of fun with. And the other one is is uh, Mad God, which, as we mentioned, has been a decades-long passion project for Phil Tippett, the VFX supervisor for Jurassic Park and for the uh, original Star Wars trilogy. Um, the One of the most iconic VFX artists in history, if not the most iconic, and uh, this is an, <laughs> a, a really fun, really creative, but like incredibly dark and punishing uh, <laughs> piece of animation. It's only like 90 minutes long. It is a, uh, a Shudder movie that had a, a limited theatrical run, and I think that's a really interesting thing. But um, yeah, just like gorgeous, you know, the, the, this sort of underworld that it creates is so like fully developed and it has this nightmare before christmas thing where it just feels like this 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 vast barren landscape just like conjures so much um but yeah gorgeous animation great dialogue free storytelling um goes in some really heavy and interesting directions uh it's and yeah it's it's just you know such a com- complete work of of you know one person's creativity which i always love I mean, still don't know if I'm going to check out the Beavis and Butthead movie, just very unfamiliar with the characters, but I'm, after, you know, your hearing your thoughts, I am more excited than ever to, to watch Mad God. Um, for my two films, first I'll, I'll talk about uh, My Father's Dragon. So it's from Cartoon Saloon, which is the studio that's best known for their like Irish folktale trilogy with Secret of Cows, Song of the Sea, and Wolfwalkers. Wolfwalkers being one of my favorite films from last year. Um, this film definitely feels smaller, both in that its art is less intricate and because it's based on a children's book rather than like a fairy tale, the scope of it doesn't feel so like timeless, but I think that the the script is very strong. The voice acting is phenomenal. Um, it's uh, about a boy who's uh, he and his mom moved to from like out in the country where they owned a store to the city during a recession, and they're like struggling economically. Um, and he is kind of hopeless. He's like, we're just going to open up a new store, and everything would be just like it was, but in a new place. But obviously there's more realistic struggles than that and so he ends up meeting a talking cat who tells him if you go to this island and you rescue this dragon you can bring the dragon back and like make money and so uh it turns into this fantasy story of him helping this dragon that's kind of been like enslaved by the animals of this island to keep lifting it up because it's sinking into the ocean um but it's a story about I think it's, you know, it's really, it is aimed at kids, but it's a good message for kids of, uh, of being honest with the people around you, of knowing when you can't take on the full responsibility of everything and asking others for help and also trusting others to do their own things instead of trying to control them constantly. Um, I still, the art, you know, it's not on the same level as something like Wolfwalkers, but I still couldn't take my eyes off it the entire time I was watching it. It's still that beautiful cartoon saloon animation. Um, I'm just, I'm really a sucker for 2D animation. It's something that like becomes so uncommon in, in American animation that anytime I can get it um, in a style that is branching out from like the more traditional anime style, I, I love to see it. And I definitely think that um, 
if you want like a, a light comforting film that uh my father's dragon is definitely worth your time um the other which is my favorite film of this past year inuo um the plot is very difficult to describe because it kind of relies on knowledge of the tale of uh uh like the, the tale of genji and like like historical japanese stories that have kind of been mythologized and are probably like uh like pop cultural like like knowledge for a lot of japanese people but are totally unknown to most american audiences um Funnily enough, the studio that animated Inuo, um, Science Saru, last year did a series called Heike Monogatari, which is like a, a new point of view adaptation of the tale of Genji. So because I watched Heike Monogatari, I had some familiarity with what they were talking about in Inuo, which definitely helped me understand the story. But the the main plot is that a blind Biwa player and a child who's been like... Uh, cast out from society because they are they like look monstrous like their body doesn't even look human um who has amazing singing and dancing skills team up and it turns into a rock opera but like set in ancient japan um and i definitely have some bias towards this film because inuo the the titular character who's the the child with the monstrous body is voiced by my favorite singer um did you see bullet train by any chance i did so in in there, there's a in Bullet Train. At least they use in the trailers. There's a cover of "Staying Alive" by the Bee Gees that's done in Japanese, uh, and that cover is done by the same person who did the voice for Inuo. So her name is Avu Chan, and she's this like gender queer uh, pop punk rock singer. And I just I love her voice, and so getting to hear her like sing songs in a movie theater for 45 minutes made my entire summer. So, um, but it's directed by Masaki Yuasa, who is known for um, Potomi Galaxy. Mind Game was like his first big film, but that's kind of older at this point. Uh, Keep Your Hands Off Eizouken was one of his more recent anime series that got a little bit of attention in the West. So I definitely recommend it. It's great. It just got put out for like digital release. So you can buy it on iTunes right now. It'll be available for rent in a few weeks. And then a few weeks after that, it will be available for uh, like Blu-ray purchase. So if you are able to, I highly recommend watching Inuo. Um, I think that it, it got a pretty limited release, uh, but it's nominated for Golden Globe for for uh, uh, best animated feature, which really surprised me because um, because of how limited its release was. I think that a lot of times anime films they're from like less well-known directors that aren't like Studio Ghibli or at this point kind of like um, Mamoru Hosoda or uh, Shinkai, I'm forgetting his first name, the guy who did Your Name, uh, aren't like really considered in the West. So uh, yeah, I'm hoping it gets a bigger audience with the with the Golden Globe nomination. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a crazy movie. I definitely want to want to give it a look. And the thing you were saying with My Father's Dragon and, and the, the traditional animation, I feel like one of the really exciting things about this year is we do see a lot of different styles of animation, you know, being presented to a broad audience. And we, I think one of the things that I appreciated about the Beavis and Butthead movie and also about the Bob's Burgers movie are just, just seeing that, that uh traditional animation on like some kind of a platform in like western media because obviously there is still very much an audience for that in uh in anime and you know and and some of those some of those japanese films 
had big releases in the West. I think specifically um, Dragon Ball Super was like the number one release the week it came out. And the Jujutsu Kaisen Zero movie also made like 30 million in the US. So like that's an- another very interesting thing about this year is the is these, you know, the, these films that are based on series, but also just just, you know, Japanese animated films coming to the US to, through these like Fathom Events things. And I think people never... The, these things have a little bit of an audience, but I think the idea of them being like number one at the box office in a weekend is is pretty new and interesting. Definitely, I think um, the increase that we've seen in the past uh, in the past few years of like mostly shonen anime like films, but films that are not just anime but like related to series, so kind of rely on some prior knowledge in order to go see it. Um, being in theaters and doing well in theaters kind of blows my mind. I remember right before the pandemic started, I went to go see one of the My Hero Academia movies in theaters with my brother and um, just being kind of astounded by the fact that I was going to get to go see, like, it was like I'd been watching My Hero Academia on my computer for a few years and I'm suddenly going to see it in a movie theater. Um, and the fact that that's lasted throughout the pandemic um, and has even, like, grown in scale of how well it's doing... Uh, it makes me happy, you know, as a as a fan of uh, of anime as like a medium. Um, I am hoping that it translates not just into like bringing over the next Dragon Ball or One Piece movie, but also into doing other stuff because there is an oversaturation of shonen anime in the uh, in the American anime market. But um, mm-hmm. like like you said, seeing two D animated features in theaters and doing well is really exciting because, especially after like Princess and the Frog back in two thousand nine didn't do quite as well as Disney wanted, two D animation has really been missing from like American movie theater spaces. So, um, it's it's good to see it making a comeback, even if right now it's only limited to like things related to to pre existing series. So um, we can talk about the other two on my list that you mentioned. Seeing uh, Wendell and Wild is a is a real a real juicy one <laughs> that we could touch on. Uh, obviously, this is Henry Selick's first movie since two thousand nine with Coraline. Um, it's been sort of talked about for such a long time, and there was I think a question at first of if Selick would even do another movie after there was such a gap between Monkey Bone and Coraline, but I think. As more and more was coming out about this movie, and it was like, it's actually happening. Netflix is bankrolling it, which is, you know, it's like, that's cool, but also, is it actually going to happen? Um, and then I think, I don't remember if it was first revealed that Key and Peele would be playing the titular characters, or that Jordan Peele was co-writing it, or if that was revealed at the same time, but I feel like once either of those was announced, I was like, okay, I'm super on board with this. And I really... Uh, I, I really like this movie a lot. I love that it's PG-13. I love all of... I, I think the animation is so incredible. I love how all of Selleck's movies are so, like, recognizably his in terms of sensibility, but they all have their own different style that they're working off of, where Nightmare Before Christmas sort of played with that gothic Tim Burton style, and uh, James and the Giant Peach was sort of taking from, like, the illustration style of the book, and... um Monkey Bone has this very, like, 90s Rocco's Modern Life kind of, uh, uh, it's hard to describe that style. And then Coraline, 
obviously has this has this incredible unique style and Wendell and Wilde I think is also doing its own thing with these sort of flat profiles and and it's very interesting I love the lore of this movie also I love how they I love how they live in their dad's nose Wendell and Wilde and the just, just all that all that like this and Pinocchio both have these different sort of realm of the dead underworld kind of lures to them and I feel like that is something that I always love to see when someone does something original with that um actually a play that I wrote at uh at Sarah Lawrence had that <laughs> had that same sort of idea but like so wildly original and fun um and yeah <laughs> i was a big uh, fan i hate i hate to kind of be a bummer on it but i was not i wanted to love this film so much like in theory i love the idea so much i find cat to be a really compelling protagonist um i i love raul as a character i think wendell and wilde are very fun but my issue with the film really came down to its pacing. There is so much in the film that I feel goes by too fast or I needed, I really wanted more details on, not just in a way that's like good world building, but in a way that was like distracting me from focusing on the plots. I was trying to figure out how much we knew about things. Um, I really wish this had been like a mini series or something because I think if it had, had a little more time to just breathe, especially in like the more emotional moments that it could have told the exact same story that's telling, but so much better. Um, I think that a lot of the stuff with Sister Helly and Manberg is really rushed. I don't understand their relationship fully. I don't, I feel like I need to know more about what Manberg's deal is. Um, I wish we had gone to spend a little more time with like Kat and her parents, um, because Kat has changed so much in the five years since they've died. I wanted to like see them get to like try to like rebuild their relationship with that five year gap. Um, I think the ending with Belzer is really, really rushed. Um, he's there and his um, the emotions he goes through of being angry at Wendell and Wilde to realizing he's a bad dad to getting his kids back and suddenly seeming like a good dad again goes by so quickly. Um, so yeah, it's I love this film in theory, but like in execution, it doesn't quite do it for me. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting thing you bring up because the the other... Selleck movies like Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline and Jane the Giant Peach are fair I guess Coraline less so but they're fairly light on story and like Nightmare especially is just like you know is based on a poem and doesn't really tell anything beyond what's told in the poem <laughs> um and uh Jane the Giant Peach also it's like his parents die and he has the evil uh, ants and then he goes into the peach and then they you know go on a sailing adventure um and Selleck is able to, I think there's a unique balance in Nightmare Before Christmas that makes it one of the all-time great films where, like, it's such a simple story, so little happens, and yet it's such an expansive world where, like, every background character f feels like they have a whole story to them. And Wendelin Wilde, I think, is a real, it's what you imagine happens to a guy who hasn't made a movie in 13 years where there there are you know so many ideas that are brought into it and i i, I find it really like rich and like i want to dig into it again and see like 
what I missed and what angles I wasn't I didn't keep in mind, but it, it it's stuffed in a way that Henrik Selleck's other movies are not. Absolutely. Um and that's for me, rather than being frustrated, it just makes me I'm not frustrated at the film itself. I'm frustrated that like we we can't that it is so stuffed because his films for me are so much about like the atmosphere about like you said building really expansive worlds and then taking them in because we aren't so focused on like a super tight plot where the plots are loose and then we get to just take in the world around us I think with Coraline there is a bit more of a plot but enough of the film is just spent with Coraline exploring the other world that we just get to see what that other world is like without having to worry about any immediate like tension or or time limit or anything like um and i think that uh wendell and wilde just gives itself such a direct narrative path that it builds this amazing world but then we don't get to find out or spend any time with it because we have to go on to the next thing so maybe if i revisit it and i just you know i'm able to watch it again like knowing the basis of the film i'll i'd be able to appreciate it a bit more but on the the one viewing i've had so far it just left me uh wanting more but not not in a good way mm-hmm. it's interesting i want us to move on but it's interesting because i feel like other than monkey bone henry selick's films are very connected to the style of an auteur other than Selleck, where it's like Tim Burton on uh, on Nightmare and Roald Dahl on J- James the Giant Peach and Neil Gaiman in Coraline. And I feel like the weight that, that Wendell and Wilde has and the like scope of all the details and all the all the little little weirdnesses going on with this movie feels very connected to the Jordan Peele uh, style for me. And um, there, there's a question to be had about how well the the peelness of it and the Selickness of it mix, because Selick uh, does again tend to, you know, luxuriate in these worlds, and Peel is the kind of person who likes to just leave little dangling threads everywhere. It, it's, it's just you're you're bringing up interesting ideas about about the movie for me. I wish I could say more, but this is actually the first like Jordan Peele written movie I've watched because I'm not a big horror person, so I can't really compare it to the rest of his filmography. Uh, Turning Red is the other one on my list that that uh, you mentioned having seen. Um, what one of the big things about this year overall is is you know at the start of the pandemic everyone was figuring out what's our streaming strategy what are the things that we wait to put in theaters what are the things we put on streaming now are we just putting everything on streaming now how do we balance theaters and streaming and disney made a lot of bad decisions (laughs) in that regard the the big one for this year was well there were a few big ones for this year but the big one with pixar was turning red an original IP. We don't know how people are going to turn out for that. Let's just, you know, put it on streaming, and if it doesn't do well, we'll cut. It. We, we, you know, we we'll cut our losses. And Lightyear, Toy Story, huge IP. Put it in theaters. <laughs> Clearly, that was not what they should have done. Yeah, I um, haven't seen Lightyear, but I have heard it is middling at best. Um, and Turning Red has definitely gotten enough of like a enough attention and uh 
like praise that, you know, it's the kind of film that if it had gone a theatrical release could definitely be something that they, they, you know, are making money marketing and, and uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and even so with Encanto, they were like, let's, let's put it in theaters and then like, box office is going to be depressed but we can then put it on streaming and it has like you know a shelf life of like four months because they or five months even because they had the theatrical run and then it went on streaming and new people discovered it they could definitely have done that with turning red um but i don't you know clearly they didn't know out of the gate that turning red was going to resonate with so many people i just think it is a really stylish and fun movie i love the character designs i love just the 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 energy of it i feel like the these recent pixar movies have not been as uh transcendent as as their first you know 10 years were but they there's just some of the recent ones that i like have like a much chiller vibe you know like luca is kind of a hangout movie and turning red is a little more manic but it feels very down to earth in a way that I like. Absolutely. I was going to say um, my other favorite, uh, my my favorite of the recent Pixar releases is Luca. Um, and I certainly don't dislike Turning Red by any means. It's just not one of my top films of the year. I think that um, Turning Red ends with like a big climax, but for the most part, it really is a smaller story. Um, and a lot of, a lot of Pixar's early works were about taking small creatures whether they be toys or bug or fish and making their adventures that might otherwise seem small to the human eye feel larger than life and um i think the recent films that have been more successful are their films that are intentionally more more down to earth and are having smaller more interpersonal conflicts than uh like hair raising adventures but I think that it's really endearing. I think that um that like modern uh like a uh, modern everyday uh setting of turning red is like really different for Pixar. Even something like Inside Out technically takes place in like present day, but we spend all of it in Riley's head, so it's not really like on Earth. Um mm-hmm. but I I love both Luca and Turning Red have like different art styles than like the traditional um Pixar art style. I love the I love the mother-daughter relationship. I love how much of just like a preteen girl May is as a protagonist. Um, you know, as like I I definitely saw like some of my preteen self in in her and her behavior. And it was um it was really refreshing to see from Pixar, honestly. I agree. <laughs> so uh i mean we get to i i'm just gonna sort of go through the other films that i've listed and you can give me a you know whether you've seen it or not um the big ones anyway so did you see apollo 10 and a half i did not so apollo 10 and a half do you do you know what it is it's link later right uh, it is it is a Richard Linklater film uh yeah. in a it, it it's rotoscoped which uh is very cool and also disqualified it from the animated feature oscar which is insane. Um, I, that's I think that um I think rotoscope is a is a technology that has historically been misused in animated films as like um cop out as like a cheap method of animation or it was done when like 
animators weren't experienced enough to do things without directly rotoscoping. Mm -hmm. But I think modern use of rotoscope um, has, like, is fully its own, like, sub subgenre of of animation as a sub medium i guess you should say of animation that is being used in much more intentional ways than just saving money and so i agree that's ridiculous that it's disqualified just because it's rotoscope yeah insane um a really fun you know one of these classic link later coming of age movies it takes place uh, in the summer of 69 uh a, a built around the the first moon landing and it's uh most of the movie is is jack black kind of narrating um as this uh this character stanley who is just sort of living at that time and very interested in space and it's this story about about him sort of being becoming connected to nasa they sort of uh you know everyone in town kind of is but it's this uh it's just a a really fun coming of age movie a lot of it is just sort of jack black listing things that, that were like relevant in 1969 uh and it's a lot of fun <laughs> so uh yeah great movie did you see the bad guys i did um i thought it was very fun i thought yeah. it was a. Uh very much like a a kids movie um it reminds me of not any of i think dreamworks has some films that are very like thought provoking very beautiful and it has some films that are very much just like uh make make silly jokes and get money from kids who want to see silly jokes in theaters and their parents i think that um, the bad guys is kind of like a refined version of the like crude humor that DreamWorks used to be known for. Um, mm-hmm. And the style is absolutely beautiful. The animation is certainly uh, the best part, in my opinion. Uh, but I, you know, I think it's a fun time. It's not something I plan on like going back to a lot. But if I was ever babysitting a kid, it's something I certainly wouldn't have an issue sitting with some kids through. Yeah, I feel like it. Uh... Is definitely an interesting sort of return to form for DreamWorks. It feels very in line with like the Madagascar uh, uh, era. Um, I would say that it is not as like inventive from a storytelling perspective or as funny as the Madagascar movies, but like with with just, you know just beautiful animation. I think great you know character work in there with the the Sam Rockwell character. I feel like the there was just the. Um, the opening shot where they're in where they're in the diner and it's sort of it's sort of a tracking shot starting from like the coffee and then they're you know chatting for a little while and they you know sort of casually rob the place and make their getaway is such a cool (laughs) scene and it's something that like we see things like that in a lot of action movies but like it's so fun and like animated movies that think about the camera and think about you know the 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 most interesting like cinematic way to tell this scene uh, to, and and i think there are moments in this movie that like sort of play with there's the you know how would this look cool if it was live action where should the camera be and then there's also stuff where they sort of characters can sort of leap out of the frame and i i think there's a really interesting balance of that the style is really what draws me to this movie i again would say that the 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 humor and the storytelling is not like revolutionary but really fun movie absolutely uh let's see did you see bell i did not um it was a bit of a like gap i 
You know, my hesitation from it came from, I think, Wolf Children is uh, definitely up there and like one of my favorite films of all time. It's by the same director, Mamoru Hosoda. Um, but I believe he's had one, like one or two films in between there, one of them being Mirai, um, which was nominated for like best best animated feature a few years ago. And I disliked Mirai so much that I couldn't finish the movie. I was watching it on a plane and I just found it so enjoyable that I stopped watching. Um, and it kind of just left me a little disappointed. And I think because of that, I was a little hesitant to watch Belle. Um, and I've heard good things about it, but I never heard anything that was like screaming that it's like the best, the best new anime film of all time. So I, I didn't see it now. Yeah, it looked fun, but I didn't get around to it either. Uh, the Bob's Burgers movie. No, um, that's another thing that's like, I, I don't watch <laughs> Bob's Burgers as a series. So I never, I didn't go and watch the movie. Yeah, I famously do not like the show Bob's Burgers. Uh, and in in seeing this movie, I felt, I probably liked it more than I have any episode of the show. Um, which, <laughs> you know, I, I think the some of the things that annoy me about the show also annoy me about the movie, but I think there is some fun, creative, there, there's some, there's, there's a few good jokes in there. There's some fun storytelling and I just feel like, you know, there's, there's obviously a higher budget. The animation is just a little more fluid and something about it with like the way that their mouths move and it gave, gave me this sort of endearing like Muppet vibe. Um, there's a few really good songs in it too. I I thought it was, uh, pretty good overall. Again, as someone who is not a fan of the show, so. Yeah, there's, um, something that always gets me in, like, the clips I've seen from the Bob's Burgers movie and, like, even back, looking back at, like, the Simpsons movie, when you take, uh, a television, like, a 2D anime television show and you make a theatrical movie for it, the animation always looks uncanny because you're just so used to them having limited movement or like only moving a little bit like to to keep costs down and suddenly they have a bigger budget and suddenly they're like they're flowing all over the place and it's uncanny to watch so i definitely mm-hmm. i watched like one of the first songs from the movie that's like the kids uh like walking down the street and singing and the the movement is so fluid that it's almost uncomfortable to watch i see that yeah uh, I did see DC League of Super Pets. I thought it was perfectly fine. It's just like we have Secret Life of Pets, and you can tell that they were like Secret Life of Pets. Those movies were successful. The DC brand is big. Let's just mash them together. And, and I, I think a lot of what can be learned from this year, like at the box office, is that it, it's still sort of an IP-driven like marketplace right now. But like the strength of an IP is not a substitute for the strength of a movie. And DC League of Super Pets is not original, uh, a little funny. Uh, I think there's a lot of Dwayne Johnson fatigue happening right now. There's a lot of superhero fatigue happening right now. There's not an unlimited appetite for that stuff anymore. Uh, yeah, it's like, whatever. Enter Galactic. So I I did not see it. Uh, the art looks really good. Um, very, very Spider-Verse-esque from what I've seen, and Spider-Verse is one of my favorite films of all time, so I'm eager to see. Uh, But I know it's from a different studio, so I'm curious how similar it is, or if it only really looks similar in, like, still shots. 
Now, it's definitely very heavily influenced by that style. I think um, I think the the DreamWorks stuff this year was also kind of influenced by that style. I think that is another one of the, you know, kind of interesting and exciting things happening in uh, in, in animation at this point is just 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 the sort of influence of that Spider Verse style and how it's leading to like more interesting looks in CG animation. But Intergalactic is uh, a very sweet little rom-com. Uh, has not stuck with me to an extreme degree, but uh, is really fun. Does have great animation. Uh, Timothy Chalamet has a pretty fun role in it. Uh, the, you know, kind of a, a weirdly stacked cast. You've got like Vanessa Hudgens. You've got Keith David, Jaden Smith. Uh, Macaulay Culkin is in it. Louise Guzman, Jessica Williams. Just uh, fun stuff. And uh, yeah, yeah, fun rom com. If you like, if you like a, if you like a little, a little romantic flick, it's a, it's a fun romp, and it has great animation too. The, uh, I did not see Hotel Transylvania Transformania. Um, I part of part of me, I have a certain respect for the Hotel Transylvania movies, and I feel like if I was committed, I would get into them. But <laughs> I have not given them that chance yet. I. I was gonna say I actually feel really similarly the only thing I really know about them like memes aside is that they and forgive me because I can never pronounce his name right they bankroll uh Gendy uh, Tartakovsky's passion projects like the the Samurai Jack reboot and that they're a they were a big deal initially at least in that um they really showed like how you can apply like squash and stretch in in CG animation because up until they were being released, CG films weren't doing that very much. And they were like really trying to hone in on like the realism part because that was easier to do with CG. Um, but the the rubberiness of of the film, like Adam Sandler's character in particular, was a big deal. I I from what I can understand when the movie first came out. Um, but like it Again, Dave Tartakovsky is an animation legend, and if he makes these movies so that he can get money to, like, do what he wants, then I'm not going to sit here and, like, put him down for doing that. Yeah, I've 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 heard some praise for them, and I've heard some people say they're terrible, uh, and I, I do feel like if I, like I said, you know, I haven't given them a chance yet, but I feel like I could, and I could like them. We talked about Lightyear, um... There was the there was the Marmaduke movie on Netflix, which we've talked about on this show before. Uh, the big news from that is that Pete Davidson is Marmaduke. Um, there's Minions: The Rise of Gru, the the top grossing animated film of the year by like seven hundred million, <laughs> like like you know four times as much as the next top grossing, which is Bad Guys. Damn. Uh, I mean, I didn't see a single movie in theaters this. This year, or no, I saw Inuo in theaters because that was the only thing available in theaters. But you know, that was that was a limited like, like if if you like anime, if you like Masaki Yuasa, like come see this film. It wasn't something that was going to make any money. So, um, I mean, I know there's the whole like meme behind it of people dressing up in suits. Um, one of my best friends who's like a big movie buff was working at a movie theater this summer, and he was telling me like it was a bit annoying. These like. Less because it was a ton of teenagers coming in and watching Minions and more just because a lot of them were, like, really rude and, like, talking mm. during the movie. Um, but this year was the year of, like, 
internet culture like really affecting movie stuff just like with morbius Mm -hmm. um and with this like people on the internet just like getting together and making really influential moves on like the success or failure of theatrical releases um it's it's uh it's uh it's amazing to see yeah it's interesting because uh Obviously, this movie made a lot of money. I've heard it's pretty good. I did not like the other Minions movie slash movies. I don't remember if there were one or two before this. The thing is, somehow, it it was a real thing at the time, and it still continues to be a thing, where, like, I would be hanging out with people who are young adults, and they would be like, oh, yeah, I saw the new Minions movie. It was good. Like, it's not just this meme. For some reason teens and young adults were like i should go see the minions movie and they liked it it had this weird word of mouth thing that's that's crazy to me because my experience seeing the first minions movie was like an inverse of that where um we were having like trip day at my summer camp and i was in the oldest age group so you know this camp went from people like eight to to 15 so i was like this is when i was 15 and um that's when the first Minions movie was in theaters. And it was like that in maybe like the last Twilight movie or like a, a, a some like YA book adaptation movie. Mm-hmm. And those were like our two options. And everybody wanted to see whatever like the YA adaptation was. And then our counselors kind of made the decision that they were concerned that parents would be upset if we took these 15-year-olds to see a PG-13 movie. So they made all these 15-year-olds go watch the Minions movie instead. (laughs) So I literally saw it against my will. Um, But that's so fascinating that like now it's just become this phenomenon that people are just watching it like for fun and enjoying it, people that are my age. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely an element of, like, the people who were very young when the first Despicable Me came out are now older teens. And and there's probably a certain nostalgia factor going on there, but, and, you know, it's been, like, seven years since the other Minions movie came out. But I also just, it, it seems like it's good. The soundtrack is good. <laughs> so who knows? There's the the other Pinocchio, the Russian Pinocchio, uh that uh was it was another sort of sort of sort of meme online that um didn't get uh any kind of real release here i think it just went straight to vod but the 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 infamous thing is that paulie shore is the voice oh. of pinocchio in that one and oh, uh <laughs> when can i go out to be on my own i have the whole world to see i have the whole world to see just just, just another moment where i i mean it's a fickle thing this this sort of online uh <laughs> online is a fickle thing where you know morbius did not make very much money and then when it became such a meme they put it out in theaters again and it still didn't make money uh, <laughs> but but there was a measurable impact of the minions meme but the the pinocchio i think it was already too late for that movie but um i mean i know people who went and like watched that movie and you know probably some people rented it so like i'm sure that had an impact where like this this obscure russian pinocchio movie would not have made any kind of impact otherwise in a year where you know two other pinocchio movies came out yeah uh you know it's one of those things that's you know really feels like a mockbuster and i don't i don't want to like say that for sure but um you know two 
well-known creative bodies, whether that's like the, I mean, I guess it was Robert Zemeckis that did the, the Zemeckis, mix, right? Yeah. So I was two famous directors putting out their renditions of Pinocchio. It does feel like a bit of a cash grab, but uh, um, it will live in infamy. Honestly, I think that it has more like internet impact than the, the Robert Zemeckis edition. Um, I mean, I think, uh, the the del toro pinocchio is making its rounds as like this is a good movie and it's got really great stop motion and you should see it but not in like a meany way um i've heard the shit um from like podcasts and stuff about the zemeckis pinocchio but it wasn't making like meme territory in the same way that the russian one was there's uh the sea beast which i did see and thought was okay um a little bit of an obscure one. I don't remember what the uh, the situation was with the studio, but it was just some. Uh, I think it was a Netflix release, actually. Yeah, it was. Yeah, um, yeah that was a, that was decent. Kind of kind of a more regular one, but it was uh, directed by the guy that did Big Hero Six, and uh, you know had had some some talent attached to it. There's Strange World, which I did not see. Another uh, I... another bomb for Disney this year. Yeah. Um, although. Again, I don't want to make any like solid claims or anything, but the the rumor online is that they did no advertising for it, possibly because the main character is like gay and not just in like a side note way, but in that like him pursuing a boy is like part of the story. Um, and people are saying that Disney wasn't advertising it because of that. Um, I I'm not gonna like. Say like I believe that a hundred percent, but it does definitely seem like they were advertising it a lot less than other films of theirs, um, and so they were almost making it destined to fail in the box office, which is disappointing. Um, but I also have heard that it's also kind of mediocre. So yeah, I think I think people do have a tendency to sort of overanalyze whenever a, a, a Disney movie flops, and we saw this sort of back and forth with Lightyear a lot, where it was like you know, were, were they burying this because of the lesbian characters? Did it fail because of the lesbian characters? Lightyear failed because the premise doesn't make any sense. And and Strange World, I think, ha- has a similar just, like, appeal issue where, like, the, the first trailer had this, like, you know, this vintage newsreel kind of thing to it. And it was like this, this you know, pulp novel stuff going on. It was like, this is interesting. And then every successive trailer seemed like it was designed to make you less interested in the movie. <laughs> I just think it seemed like a really plain story, like a really predictable thing where it's like, you know, the, he meets his long lost dad and it's like, oh, he's going to be the bad guy. And then I, I don't know if that was the real thing, but it felt, it, it felt very predictable in that regard. Um, the fact that Jabuki is like the lead of the movie <laughs> and there was no like similar online, you know, movement behind it. Yeah, it, it, I, I think it, it had a, a, an appeal issue more than anything else. Yeah, Disney's Disney's track record with um with sci-fi has been like really up and down. Um, I mean, the first like firmly sci-fi movie of theirs, like Atlantis and Treasure Planet both did not do the numbers that they wanted them to. I don't know how Meet the Robinsons did. I think it was like decent, but certainly not something that made a lasting cultural impact. Um, sure. Big Hero 6, I think, did pretty well. Uh, mm-hmm. But 
especially because they're a brand known for like their princess movies and their more fantastical stories that they seem to really struggle um when it comes to their sci-fi stories yeah i think their their big success was lilo and stitch in in the sci-fi realm because that's something that i think had uh you know a little bit of of like the girl protagonist you know it had it had there's there's this 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 ethos that i think goes back to michael eisner of like but we have to try and make stuff for boys and it, it informs other decisions from the animation side in these very weird ways where it's like the reason that the princess movies are just named like adjectives now is because they think if they put like princess or like a you know a girl's name in the title then boys aren't going to see it and the the strange world feels like another movie that was like okay we're gonna make a movie about boys and men and, and fathers and sons and and you know we, we we have to track that in addition to whatever our, our movie aimed at girls is and it 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 feels just forced i think definitely um you know i'm like i because disney is such a big name like i have no qualms with the company failing but because they're such a big name and they're able to back artists i i want more of their films to do well because i want artists to make quality productions and to have those funded if that means by disney then so be it i mean beginning to speak more broadly about the trends in animation this year uh i think one of the encouraging things is disney getting kind of crushed <laughs> on all fronts um I, I mean particularly by universal who kind of who kind of snuck up from behind they had illumination and illumination was doing well but then in 2016 they they acquired dreamworks and now it's like they, they they're just there's right now there is no contest in terms of box office and in terms of relevance with the movie the the animated films that disney's putting out versus the animated films that universal is putting out like universal is is winning and, and i mean the only two american animated films that like were like definitive box office hits and like and had that you know huge cultural impact this year in theaters were minions and bad guys they were they were two uh universal movies and uh yeah i think it's a very good thing that disney is you know squandering <laughs> uh, a, a, a lot of these a lot of these releases and a lot of their strategies aren't working i think now that they have uh, bob Iger back in the driver's seat we're probably going to see a shift in strategy over the next few years um but i think they're still screwed in a lot of ways because like we I, I was looking at uh some news about the mcu where it's like internally they're like they're like phase four didn't work and we need to rethink our strategy and they're saying like we're going to focus less on quantity and more on quality the stuff that's sort of in limbo right now we don't know what we're doing with it we're just not going to make them um but they have three movies that are definitely coming out next year that and i think none of them are going to be good so so <laughs> th that's the thing and I think as we're looking forward, we're going to have to see, you know, I think we're entering a lean period for Disney as, again, Netflix and Universal and some of these other studios are putting up really interesting stuff. So Absolutely. that's exciting. Um, yeah, I mean, as much as I was just saying, like, I want Disney to do better. It's really like, like Disney as a company does not mean anything, you know, it's Disney supports artists who who produce things. And so... 
Uh, like I said, I have no problems with seeing Disney fail, especially because their dominance in animation has has directed trends for so long. I think things can potentially, you know, there can be a big shift in what we see in theaters because Disney isn't doing so well. Um, I think that uh, overproduction is often like an issue with these things. We went from, there is a time where, it was like one film a year, maybe two. That was like, it would be like a March and a November release. And we had, what was it? Turning Red in April and then Lightyear. Lightyear was a November release too, I guess. But, um. No. <laughs> no, it was earlier Lightyear than that? was. When was Lightyear? Lightyear was like June. Oh, it was June. See, like, things are coming <laughs> out really rapidly. And I think, again, if there is a focus on quality over quantity, um, they would be getting better returns. Not to say that like Illumination is following that and not getting amazing returns, but um, you know, people, no matter how good people say a minion movie is, people typically aren't looking back on like the Despicable Me franchise or Sing or The Secret Life of Pets and going, like, that's a movie I'll treasure for years and years. I mean, I've heard great things about Sing too. Illumination is sort of still still employing a bit of calculation i think in what they are putting out i know they're putting out the mario movie next year i don't think they have uh anything else on the way but like i mean we talked about this uh this 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 line blurring between like you know features and tv stuff there's a lot of you know these these like I, I think we see this with Disney mostly where they're strategizing, they're sort of stacking IP where it's like, this is the, the top shelf IP where it's like this, we have to save for theaters. And then the stuff like Ice Age and Night at the Museum, it's like, let's let's see how this does. We'll just throw it on Disney Plus and that'll be safe. Um, which again, is, is the reason that A, Disney did not put out many things in theaters this year. The reason that uh, those things did not do well because that strategy didn't really work for them and they did it wrong. Uh, and the reason that other studios are 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 coming to prominence and i think um i i mean the big thing is netflix you know creating this platform for a a lot of different studios b a lot of different styles and c a lot of animation w made with an adult audience in mind um th that's really the spot where i think we're we're seeing more more interesting stuff come out and we're seeing a little bit of that from other streaming streamers which i think is even more uh encouraging we have mad god on shutter we have some of the stuff on paramount plus but i think we're seeing this division now where it's like universal are is making these these cash cows at the box office and they're like franchise films with like some effort put into them and that are are you know have their own formula that is unique from the Disney formula and Disney is still figuring out <laughs> what they're going to be doing. Uh, they, you know, they still need to figure they have a few originals coming out next year. We'll get into, but Netflix is, is the spot where there, there is this sort of wildness to, 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 to the animation scene there that I think is very exciting. Absolutely. So the question of, uh, was it a good year? And how does it compare to previous years? Um, I wanted to sort of look into my claim more specifically by looking at some of the other years. And, you know, I think there was a great volume of unique and interesting animated movies this year. I think a lot of the bad ones were not that bad. And there's stuff like Lightyear and Luck and Pause of Fury that I can't fully ignore. But 
Um, I I think there are promising trends this year and a great volume of, of really good movies. I, I agree. I think, um, you know, a lot of it is the trend. I think that not everything this year was, like, amazing, but I like the trend that we're seeing. I like seeing the rise in Netflix animated films. They're taking more risks. It's almost, I like seeing Disney bombing a bit because it's forcing them to have to think differently. So, Alex, thank you so much for joining me on this uh, spectacular blockbuster episode of Pulp Friction. Thank you for having me. To those of you who have been listening so far, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we will have our two awards episodes coming in January, the Movie Awards and the Music Awards. I'm not sure in which order. Um, but if you like the show, you can subscribe wherever you're listening, rate it wherever you're listening, um, share it, let people know you like the show. That's one of the best things you can do. Uh, you can join our Discord server if you're a fan of the show. We have links up on, on, our, on our Twitter and a couple other places in the description, too. And I'll see you all next week. I disagree, Gary. I disagree, Gary.